Matthew 11. When John, who was in prison, heard about the deeds of the Messiah, he sent his disciples to ask him, Are you the one who is to come, or should we expect someone else? Jesus replied, Go back and report to John what you hear and see. The blind receive sight, the lame walk, those who have leprosy are cleansed, the deaf hear, the dead are raised, and the good news is proclaimed to the poor. Blessed is anyone who does not stumble on account of me. As John's disciples were leaving, Jesus began to speak to the crowd about John. What did you go out into the wilderness to see? A reed swayed by the wind? If not, what did you go out to see? A man dressed in fine clothes? No, those who wear fine clothes are, are in king's palaces. Then what did you go out to see? A prophet? Yes, I tell you, and more than a prophet. This is the one about whom it is written. I will send my messenger ahead of you. You will prepare your way before you. Truly I tell you, among those born of women, there has not risen anyone greater than John the Baptist. Yet whoever is least in the kingdom of heaven is greater than he. The word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. You may be seated. The kids are invited to Kids Church. Are you the one we are waiting for, or should we wait for someone else? The question that John's disciples ask of Jesus is, John waits in prison. It's a good imagery. So, so what, what happened is last week we heard from John at the edge of the wilderness proclaiming his gospel, teaching his word, and we jumped forward all the way to chapter 11. One of the things that I love about the lectionary during Advent is it has no respect for chronology. It just jumps all over the place. We've been uh, Matthew predicting the second coming, back to John before Jesus, to John in prison, asking the full-grown adult Jesus a question, which kind of throws off what we think we're doing sometimes. We think we're waiting for um, the little baby Jesus to be born. So why aren't all the scriptures about that? Why aren't they, they orienting us towards that? Or why isn't every Sunday just Christmas? Or why isn't something along those lines? But what is trying to happen is something is to be trained within us to give us perception during this time. That the church year and its, its wisdom, um, and sometimes questionable wisdom, but, but its goal and its wisdom is to train within the people of God gathered to have certain dispositions to have this time in which we look and we say, this world is awaiting a new age, is awaiting a new time. And so we, like John, can feel like, in the world as it is now, in the prison cell. And every Sunday we get together and we sing songs, like the world is about to turn, about our waiting hope, about what we want to come. And we may feel like, send somebody to ask him if he's really the one. 
or if we are waiting for someone else. And I think that there's an interesting question there because we have so many something else's we can place our hope in. I mean, John, being the faithful prophet that he is, probably means like, look, are you like me, priming the pump for what's going to happen? Or um, are you the thing? Now, we can get into his question a little bit later, but, but I think for us, we, we can ask, you know, are you the one? Or should I get busy trying to save myself? Are you the one? Or should I place my hope in technology? Are you the one, or is the American electoral process the place I should focus all my energy and time? Are you the one, or should I buy my kid a horse for Christmas and hope for the best? Um, we, we have all these things we can place our hopes in. And, and the challenge, I think, of Scripture during this time is most of us are like, oh, yeah, I know better. But, but we also hedge our bets, too. Um, uh, yes, I trust that Christ will be the one to return and to restore all things. But in the meantime, I need to make some money and, and secure my future. But, which is true, but it, it often goes beyond surviving so that I can be ready for Christ's return. It goes to how do I secure myself? How do I make my lot in life secure? And it's, you know, it's a thin line. You know, the people who don't have a lot, can be hedged as much as people who are like, you know, I really needed the third house in Aspen because you just don't know um, if you really need to move up there because of rising sea tides or something like that. Like, we can all self-rationalize in whatever way we want. I don't mean to pick on that, but, but amongst those who have less too is, is you know, um, uh, stockpiling infant medicine just because I'm worried. You know, we have all our ways of hedging our bets. So we too, like John, in the midst of what can feel like the prison of this age, asks, is the new age coming from you? Or are we waiting for someone else? Or are we waiting for something else? It's an important question. Jesus' reply, go back and report to John what you hear and see. Go back and report to John what you hear and see. Because an interesting way to phrase that is, is to report not what I tell you, but to report what you've heard and seen. Now that's what we are drawn into, is that we've, on this journey of faith, by entering and by beginning, we've heard or seen something of God's good work. And it's to receive that report. And this is, is great because it works two ways. Is, is if we're John in prison too, we are waiting to hear from others. One of the things that I think upbuilds most often in the spiritual life is the reports of what others have heard and seen Jesus do. The transformations that have come that way. The testimony and the witnesses of people who have been transformed in that way. The blind receive sight, the lame walk. Those who have leprosy are cleansed. The deaf hear, the dead are raised, and the good news is proclaimed to the poor. Blessed is anyone who doesn't stumble on account of me. What Jesus recites back to, to John's disciples here is, is, is saying that what is promised in Isaiah 
is what we hear and see happening in my ministry. Are you the one that are we are waiting for? Go back and look at the text about the one you are waiting for and what is happening in my ministry. But the challenge is we read that portion from Isaiah this morning, one of the, which Cowan read the Isaiah, Brielle? Brielle read uh, Isaiah. We heard that read this morning, and the challenge is, is that there's Isaiah 34 before it. And John had in his mindset much of Isaiah 35, but also Isaiah 34, which had this idea of which there will be judgment. There will be a way in which creation is set to right through God's righteous reordering that comes in its healing and its goodness, but also through its judgment. Now, if that's your imagination, if John is is wired into Isaiah well, he's wondering, why am I in prison? And the church, us, Christians, we want to be triumphant. We want to have that, that, that word come that says, first, let's cast out all the people trying to destroy you, and then the good news comes after. Jesus' ministry is weird in that sense. Because what he does is he brings the fruits of that new creation, but what's missing is that massive judgment of what is supposed to happen. Now, I think it's hard because... If we look at the world, we know that judgment is needed. We know that there is corruption, there is disorder. Even if you were just to say the fact that um, natural um, diseases or earthquakes or whatever, if we're going to have the renewal of the place, something has to come and judge that out. It has to say that which abuses, that which destroys, that which steals doesn't belong. Naive sometimes if we think that's not needed. Couldn't, couldn't this all be sewn up without anything having to change? Walter Brandt Brueggemann has this, this phrase that um, for Americans, we, our only imagination for hope is just more of the present, not a renewed, different thing. Couldn't it all just be a little bit nicer and it work out that way? And so we have this challenge, and, and there's different ways of talking about the judgment that happens in Jesus. Um, first, he's the one who takes on the judgment, which is an interesting thing that was anticipated in a different portion of Isaiah, but is not in the portion we read today, that he is the one who becomes the suffering servant who takes on this judgment. Their second, dearly, is that, is that what we see in, in Jesus' first coming is the cracks and the lights, that this is about to turn, but we await that second coming when things are finally restored to rights. Um, and that's uh, not a small thing. That is the hope of Christianity, because otherwise we can try, we can work, we can build the just world as best as we can, and yet we will always fail. And we always do. That's where the psalm comes in from this morning. It mirrors, too, what Jesus said back to John's disciples, to go and see and hear this, too. But it is the hope of those who have no hope that is in God. When you're at the bottom, when you're in that poor spot, when you've been abandoned, you know that only something much stronger than you can help. Oftentimes, in my own 
work in Christian ministry with the poor and homeless or helping people who are disadvantaged is I almost have this naive sense that your hope is in me. Congratulations, I'm here. Which is no solution for their problem at all. First off, I can only help them so much. Second off, I get annoyed at some point in the process of, of day 17 of trying to help somebody secure, uh, secure housing or, or uh, pay their rent or something like that. Um, you would need somebody who doesn't have that temperament to be a real help. So often the church thinks that it's us who brings this about, but it is God who brings it about for those people. And it's only, I think, a temptation to us because we have so many ways we can secure it ourselves. Um, if I can invest properly, if I plan properly, if I you know, um, put my kids in the right school, make the right choices, I will have secured that future for myself. So often we're, we're naive, and it often takes um, the lightning strike of difficulty and challenge for us to wake up to the fact that we are not as in charge as we think we are. Something, at some point, comes and shatters our illusions of such. And so Jesus tells John's disciples to go back and report to that. Um, and John is, is dealing with that, that paradise, the, the paradox of existence in the era of fulfillment, that, that he is awaiting this fulfilled one, but also seeing that the old order still has strength. The old order is still active here. I do like that second question that Jesus asks of, of John's disciples, which, or of the people, not John's disciples. What did you go in the wilderness to look at? Asking of John. But I do think it's a pertinent question for us, too, is what did we go out to see? What have we gathered to hear? What is it we are looking for in this? We want a reed swaying by the wind. Are we looking for um, uh, one with fine clothes? No, we went out to see a prophet. Yes, I tell you, more than a prophet I will send my messenger ahead of you who will prepare your way. That what Isaiah promised is that one will come who will prepare that way, and it won't come from the halls of power. It won't come from where we'd hope it would come. And that, I think, is the challenge for people, is that they've come out to see John in his excitement, and what they found is, is that now that John is in prison, who could have guessed? I mean, this is part of the, uh, I'm making fun of myself as much as I'm making fun of first century people, is the guy who was using the message, challenging all that is, got captured and put in jail, even though he had no army or strength of his own. Like, uh, I would be shocked too, and then I'd have to sit down and go, why am I shocked that one who gathers a crowd um, challenges the systems as they are, has ended up a victim of them. History is not a story of that happening all the time. Um, this is the first time, I believe. No. Um, but that's where he ended up. And so that question of what did you come out to see? Did you come out to see one who was already rich? One who was already secure in their way? One who had benefited from the systems as they were? Or did you come out to see something else? And if that's what you came out to see, what else might change with your expectations because of that? 
That's where it started. It's not where we wanted it to end. So too with Jesus often we get to the point of we get where it started, but it's not where we wanted it to end. Now what's important about what Jesus summarizes for us, and this um, will bring us to the, to, to the James reading, um, which I've been trying to focus on the epistle readings that the lectionary, the prescribed readings for this season, gives to us. This week it comes from the book of James. Um, but what's important about um, what Jesus says has happened is that they are signs of the full fulfillment of the age. And what's weird is we have, in some senses, often two different kinds of Christians. We have Christians who say, we need more miracles in the life of the church, which wouldn't hurt, <laughs> um, but those miracles were always the sign of the next thing, the coming age. The lame walk, that people are healed from illness. They were not meant to be the thing themselves. They were meant to be a witness to the coming thing. They're, they're the arrow that points in that direction. And so we get a lot of that as a church. We get a lot of that as Christians. Is, is Aren't we supposed to have more of these in our life? But then there's the second group, the second challenge. These are more the people close to me um, that say, why aren't we doing those things? Why aren't we the good news for the poor? Why aren't we with the press? Why aren't we releasing people from jail? Which again, the church is called to be involved in, but as signs of the coming age, not making the coming age. We can't bring about that day. And so we look for places in which it might appear that kingdom has begun in Jesus already, but we wait for that to, in its fullness because one is coming who brings that. And that's a full kingdom that is for this reconstituted people. And in Isaiah, the reconstituted people of God, which is Israel. In the New Testament, the reconstituted people of God, which is the church, which is Gentile and Israel together, which is hinted at in Isaiah, such as last week. But the point being is, there's a whole world coming. These things are signs of that whole world. But we want to make them the thing. It's often pointed out that as Jesus raises somebody from the dead, they die later. As Jesus heals someone who has sickness, they also die later. It's probably not as, it's probably as true in their world as he proclaims freedom to the captive in prison that they find themselves re-imprisoned again. All of these signs are half in their fulfillment. But we... You're cleansed from leprosy, and you get something else. There are supposed to be signs of that renewal, signs of that recreation, signs of that new world, but they are not the new world itself. And so James reminds us uh, to be patient, therefore, beloved, until the coming of the Lord, to be a people who are patient. A comic, one of the commentators was talking about this way about a person who kneels down and says, God, make me patient. And they get up and say, When is that going to happen? 
Patience is not a strong suit for us today. Um, the King James and the Fruits of the Spirit, I say this often, um, uh, Kelly has a Christian bracelet that has the Fruits of the Spirit on it. And I think this is funny, but it seems like all Christian jewelry has to come in the King James translation. Um, it's like a rule that even though we have many translations, if it's Christian jewelry, King James it is. I have a keychain that says, For lo, I am with you always till the end of the age which is not the way it reads in our modern translations. But suffering, I was like, where is suffering on this bracelet? And it, or not suffering, uh, patience. Patience in the King James and the fruits of the Spirit is translated as long-suffering. Long-suffering. Sign me up. Um, that we are invited into a season of long-suffering. And this, this is a good word for this time because patience isn't great around the holidays. And there's two ways it goes. One is, I can't wait for the people to come here. I can't wait to give the gifts. I can't wait to celebrate with my family. And the second, which is, I can't wait for them to leave. Um, the long-suffering is either in anticipation or in, in anticipation of the leaving. Um, it's a hard season either way. Uh, and I think most of us feel a mix of both. I'm excited for the holidays, and I'm dreading it at the same time. But we can't wait. We are a people who struggle to wait. And so he says, he uses an agricultural analogy. The farmer waits for the precious crop from the earth, being patient with it until it receives the early and late rains. If in this analogy James is intending to apply that we are the farmer, we both wait from the earth and for the late and early rains. We are only in control of waiting, which is not the optimistic way I like to think about my time. But waiting in patience is what we're called into when we think about that renewal. We've seen the early signs of what God is going to do in bringing this new age, and we want it now. And yet, James, in his wisdom, calls us into this patience, this long-suffering and waiting. You also must be patient. Now, this is from the NRSV because I like this phrase so much, strengthen your hearts for the coming of the Lord is near. Strengthen your hearts for the coming of the Lord is near. Now, I instantly, when I read that, I was like, I really like that idea of what does it mean to strengthen my heart? What would that look like? And so I... Um, having Google and the internet and all the other things that we have, I was like, I'm going to Google, what does it mean to strengthen your heart? And I was hoping that some famous megachurch pastor had 10 simple things that you could do to strengthen your heart. And I did find 10 simple things, but they were actually about heart health. The doctors have, have thus trolled me through Google. Cultivate a more active lifestyle. Get 30 minutes of aerobic activity every day. Improve your diet. Lower your cholesterol. Limit drinking. Focus on your gum health, which I had no idea what that would do with my heart, but that's an important thing. Get your sleep, uh, drink plenty of water, stop smoking, and then, as it always ends with doctors, come see us. Um, go get your annual checkup. What does it mean to strengthen our hearts? 
Now, I put this up as a joke. I, I thought for a second, if I were a better preacher, I'd be like, cultivate a more active lifestyle means praying. 30 minutes of exercise is spending time in the word. Improve your diet, turn off the news. Um, uh, you know, we could go on as I stretch every metaphor to, to get your annual come to church on Christmas and Easter. Um, uh, uh, this would be a lot of fun, actually, now that I think about it. Um, I'm not the better preacher in that. Um, but I was thinking, as I fell in love with that phrase, what would it mean to strengthen my heart anyways? Like, if you Google what does it mean to strengthen your heart, the doctors are willing to tell you 10 things to do. Um, and if they're honest, they're like, and it may not work anyways, um, which is the exemption that wasn't on here, that like, uh, we're not in control as much as we think we are. Um, but anyways, the... What are the challenges that we might undertake during this season to strengthen our hearts? To make up, up this in reserve of waiting, of being still, of knowing that God comes after us. This was a, a, one of the more famous tweets. Um, There's a guy in this coffee shop sitting at a table, not on his phone, not on a laptop, just drinking coffee like a psychopath. Um, Justin Early, the guy who does the common rule resource we put out every advent and stuff, he sent out his email this week. He doesn't send out many emails, but it was uh, one of the advent challenges in the common rule is waiting without your phone actually just waiting what does it mean to go into a place and just sit there without your laptop or your phone out like a psychopath (laughs) how might that strengthen our hearts though because that's the hard part if you look around anywhere you go from doctor's offices to driving um, to coffee shops Everybody is consumed with something. When you're checking out at the grocery store, everybody instantly picks. It's, it's not far. And you could always read the headlines on the, the Sun and whatever those, the National Enquirer. I don't think those are out anymore, but it shows you how long it's been since I've really gone grocery shopping. Anyways, um, you know, you could do those things, um, but we're so connected that we can't have a single down moment. We can't wait without picking up our phone. Now, on average, a person unlocks their phone, just because I wanted to have fun with this, 80 times a day. The average American is on their phone for three hours, a little over three hours. The average Gen Z, because I always like to feel better about myself, is four hours, so at least we're better than that. There was a study a couple years ago, though, that where the person doing the study on how much people are on their phones, if you looked at your phone, you you wouldn't get credit for time away from the phone unless you went 10 minutes without picking it up. So you check your phone, you put it down. If you pick it up at nine minutes, that still counts as the clock resets. Among college students, he found that they were never not on their phone that way. It's not like we're reading three hours of a long read article on uh, exposing the ills of our age. It's we're checking it constantly. 
we're on it nonstop. And, and as I always say, the first target of these sermons is myself. Um, what would it look like to train our hearts? One way to strengthen our hearts is to just be in the grocery store line. To not always have to have a podcast or an audiobook playing so that none of our time is actually not filled. For me, what would it look like to walk the dog without my phone? What if something happened? See? <laughs> we can secure our own future very fast. And as the holidays come, and for many of us we're surrounded by more and more people, what would it mean to be present without the quick escape to another space? And what's amazing about the world today is the quick space, uh, escape to another space. We all sit in the same room and do it. Um, Sherry Turkle's book on the modern family was called Alone Together. The family is still together in the house. Actually, the family's together in the house more than it's ever been in the house, but they're all alone in their own rooms, on their own devices, in their own spaces. And as I found with my own family, we're quite social. We sit on our phones in the same room. Um, uh, we are near to one another in goodness and in truth. So that's just one way. Um, and that may not be your challenge. But what are ways we can strengthen our hearts for that coming day? Um, you must be patient. Strengthen your hearts for the coming of the Lord is near. Beloved, do not grumble against one another so that you may not, so that you may not be judged. See, the judge is standing at the door. And as an example of suffering and patience, beloved, take the prophets who spoke in the name of the Lord. James reminds us to read the prophets. The, the next passage after this, um, this is the last observation for today. Verse 12, he says, consider Job, which is such an odd reference. As we exist in this age that's waiting for the new world to be born, James says, look at the one who we all know as the innocent sufferer as your guide. Like, there's something about me that says, the waiting would be easier to do if I deserved it. But James reminds you to look at the one who was innocent in his suffering. When we look at the age and its trials and difficulties, how do we bear it in that way? And in Job's way, he viewed God as a conversation partner in it and as one worth questioning and probing and one worth being with during that time. Job lived into that space with God, asking questions of what had happened in the age and the time. So it is for us, too, to be like that. To be the ones who can pray, Come, Lord Jesus, and do so in patience and expectation that God is going to come. Are you the one we are waiting for, or should we wait for someone else? The act of new creation has begun in Jesus Christ. And it's for us to be patient, to strengthen our hearts, 
for that day of renewal is coming. Let us pray. God, you have called us to be your people. People gathered around the one whom some question, are you the one? Who we at times ask, are you the one? But God, as you've gathered us in that way and called us as your people in that way, you've called us to be a witness of patience in the world, of long-suffering. For we know while we'll see signs of the new creation break into this age, its fulfillment stands with you on the other side. That we await the fullness and the goodness of that day. And so we are called to strengthen our hearts during this time. To build up the reserve of being present in the midst of the difficulties of this time. To endure and to wait like a farmer. God, during this season of Advent, call us into strengthening our hearts as well. That we can be present to each other, to our families and friends, to our coworkers in the world, in a way that speaks that we know where this is going. So we can be patient. We can be in anticipation. We can be a people of hope. We ask all this in your holy name. Amen.